Hello, everyone. It's Angeline Chen. Welcome to Immigration Today, where I interview leaders, advocates, experts, and volunteers in immigration and immigrant rights on the issues, their experiences, and how you can make a difference. Today, we have Connie Chung Jo, the Chief Executive Officer of Asian Americans Advancing Justice, Los Angeles. They are the nation's largest legal and civil rights organization for Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders. Before this, Connie served as the executive director of the Korean American Family Services for 11 years and was a public interest lawyer for seven years. She worked at the Housing Rights Center in Los Angeles, representing clients in fair housing cases and the ACLU in Chicago, working on immigrant rights, reproductive rights, post 9-11 racial profiling, police accountability, and First Amendment cases. Connie received her BA in Spanish and International Relations from USC and her JD from Georgetown University Law Center. Connie has been honored for her work by the Asian Pacific Women's Center and Asian American Drug Abuse Program. In 2016, she was appointed by California Senate President Pro Tem Kevin DeLeon to the Domestic Violence Advisory Council. In 2017, Connie was named by California Assembly Member Sebastian Ridley Thomas and LA County Board Supervisor Mark Ridley Thomas, a 40 under 40 emerging civic leader. I had the pleasure of participating in, a, in an event with Connie in April 2021 that was called Stop AAPI Hate with the YWCA Glendale Pasadena. This was centered around Asian American Pacific Islander hate crimes and the community and policy work being done to raise awareness and end the violence. Welcome to the podcast, Connie. Thank you so much for having me, Angeline. Thank you. So we're just going to get right to and ask some questions, get to know you a little bit more and your work and how we can help. Is that okay? Sounds great. Awesome. Okay. So can you tell us where your passion for working in social justice and immigrant rights for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders stem from? Well, I think I, I would say in college, I started to think about what was I, what was I going to do with my life when I graduated? And um, I decided to go to law school because I knew I had an interest in civil rights and social justice, as well as international human rights. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I thought having a legal degree would provide me with the tools to be an advocate in some of these areas. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in law school, um, I actually went to school in DC at Georgetown and my third year of life, law school is when 9-11 hit. And mm. it had a very direct impact on me and uh, my colleagues at law school. And it was after that that I decided, okay, I don't think international human rights is what I want to do right now. I really need to focus on what's happening in this country. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a South Asian roommate. I had a Persian classmate. I had friends who were being um, targeted for being mm -hmm. um Arab, Middle Eastern, Muslim, or South Asian, what we call the Amemza community. And I felt this was an issue um, that was really a problem right now with the racial profiling. So that's when I went to the ACLU in Chicago. They were mm -hmm. working on an interesting case involving um, an American woman, a young woman who is an AmeriCorps volunteer. Um, but she had been strip searched at O'Hare Airport because she wore a hijab, which is a head mm. covering. She's, um, she practices, uh, she's a Muslim. So mm. um, what 
started there working at uh, ACLU and then I came back to LA where I'm from and worked at the Housing Rights Center. What I realized after about six or seven years of practicing law is, although I was still committed to nonprofit and public interest and social justice, I really missed working with the Asian Pacific Islander community. Mm-hmm. You know, I found even at my uh, job at the Housing Rights Center, which was in Koreatown and presumably should have had Asian Americans because we had staff who were bilingual um, in Cantonese, Mandarin and Korean at that time. We couldn't get APIs to come through the door. Mm. And that's when I realized there was something about uh, being at a culturally specific API organization that was important because our immigrant community members still face a lot of both language and cultural barriers entering the door of a mainstream um, um, organization as well as government offices. Um, And that's when I realized, okay, I really wanna work with Mike in my community. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's Mm -hmm. when I went to uh, Korean American Family Services Mm -hmm. where our clients were, you know, 95% of our mental health clients were Korean immigrant families. over 90% of the domestic violence survivors we served were Korean immigrant women. It, I real, that's when I realized working with an API culturally specific organization was so important to penetrate and reach our community members. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I want to go back because you talk a lot about, you know, being more involved in the API community as you were growing up. What in your upbringing, how was, how was your upbringing like? Was, was your family dynamic like? Were you around a lot of Korean Americans, Koreans, and Asians? If you could tell us a little bit about that, that'd be great. Yeah, um, so I grew up in LA County uh, to two parents who were immigrants from South Korea who came mm. in the early 70s. I was the first person to be born in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, And my parents did bring other family members through family petition through our immigration system. So I was surrounded by a lot of Korean immigrant um, relatives. My grandmother lived with us for some time. We did go to a Korean church. In, In certain ways, we were kind of a typical Korean American immigrant family in Los Angeles, where um, in the regular days, we went to school and our work, but on the weekends, we were at a Korean church and we spent a lot of time there. And I went to Korean uh, language school and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in elementary school, although LA County has a large Korean population, my elementary school did not. So mm-hmm. I was usually the only Asian American kid in my grade of, mm-hmm. and you know, always the only Korean in my class. My sister and brother and I were often um, the few Asian Americans you would f- see at school. And mm-hmm. the school was predominantly white. So there weren't very many Latino or black kids either. Mm-hmm. And I remember growing up feeling incredibly um, self-conscious. And I would say sometimes as far as embarrassed and ashamed to be Asian American. Mm. You know, I think I made the mistake at that when I was younger of my mom packed, you know, rice and seaweed mm. in my lunch and people mm-hmm. were asking, you know, what, what's that black stuff? And just being so embarrassed um, and, mm. you know, making sure I never made that mistake again, being embarrassed by my parents having uh, a, a thick Korean accent. You know, mm. I remember reading the book, uh, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison and just being so mm. resonating with that book, you know, this, mm. uh, this feeling of, God, I wish I had blue eyes. I wish mm-hmm. I had blonde hair. I wish my parents looked like the other PTA moms um, and could, could talk like them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I grew up feeling definitely that being Asian American was 
not something to be proud of. And I really mm. wanted to kind of assimilate with what I thought was true American culture, which in mm. my mind was white culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I went on to high school, junior high and high school where there were more Asian American kids and mm-hmm. a little more diversity. And I think I started to feel more comfortable in my Asian American skin. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say it took a long time. I would say yeah. until I was an adult, well into my 20s, did I really start to feel more comfortable Mm -hmm. um, in my own skin and proud of being an Asian American. And I think it would would go back and forth. Sometimes I had a lot of Asian friends or I dated Asian boys and Mm -hmm. I'm really comfortable with that. And other times I gravitated towards friends who were not at all Asian. I would stop eating Asian food. It kind of depended, I think, where I was physically in my environment because you know, I went to college in one city, I went to law school in another, and then I lived Mm -hmm. in Chicago. And part of it was just kind of, I think my maturity as I was growing older and and accepting that. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's so interesting. I had a a lot of similarities there with me too, because being, uh, growing up in LA County and, and then my, (laughs) my mom always trying to force the Chinese on me. And I said, I don't want to speak Chinese. I'm American. And you know, that, oh man. I mean, I don't know how it was for you, but if I had friends who came into the house, I was mm-hmm. like so embarrassed if you could smell the like stinky kimchi mm. and things like that. And so I would feel really self-conscious if any of my friends came into the house and yeah. asking friends to take off their shoes who were mm-hmm. not Asian. It was, it was awkward, you know, and, yeah. and I'm, I'm so happy that now you know, my kids, we purposely live in a neighborhood um, in San Gabriel Valley where there's mm-hmm. a ton of Asians. And so my kids don't have to have that same level of self-consciousness or awkwardness. Yeah. And that was part of why we moved to where we are. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. And uh, I mean, for me, I was raised with Asian Americans, but there was still, there was still this, like, I want to be American and the speaking the language and but now look at every kimchi's everywhere. <laughs> Seaweed is everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the thing growing up. I think, um, you know, for me in the, it's particularly, I grew up a lot in the eighties. It was being American meant in reality, being white and we exactly. didn't say it that way, but now we mm-hmm. recognize that that's what we were being told to do. And that's right. what white privilege is. Right. I look at the children's books now. I'm like, I wish I had those books I to know. read about the eyes, something about the eyes that look like kisses or something. I can't remember the, but there's so many, so many. I was like, oh, I wish I had, I wish I had those, but now I could at least give those to uh, my child. I have a one son too. So, uh, so, so different when you're a mom, right? Too. Yes. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Eyes that kiss the corners or something. Yes, and I yes. bought that the other day and I was so excited oh. to read that to my kids because I just remember being made fun of incessantly for having small eyes and yeah. people would do the slanted eyes. Kids yeah. would do that to me all the time. And I don't know, like when I was in t- a teenager, Asian girls, we started putting tape on our eyelids yes. to try to give double eyelids and make our eyes bigger. I mean, the things we did to mm-hmm. try to make ourselves look more Western or white yeah. 
And it's such a funny thing with K-pop now. Um, oh, you know, my kids say things like, oh, they, my kids love BTS. And they're like, oh, my gosh, so-and-so's accent is so cute. And I was like, no one ever thought my my family's Korean accent was cute growing up. Or or yeah. they say, oh, we want people trying to look more like a K-pop star. And I think oh. it's amazing. It's just a, such a different world than what we grew up in. Yeah, yeah. It, we're still not all the way there. But yeah. <laughs> There are also people doing surgery for double eyelids. And things. Yeah, yeah, that is, is true. I mean, there's still a, a ways to go, but yeah. I, um, I do think it's better. A, it's a contrast to when we were growing up. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So, thank you for sharing your story of upbringing. I think it really gives us a little more insight about you and, and why you do what you do. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about Asian Americans uh, Dancing Justice in LA? Like, what 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 does the organization do? So um, Asian Americans Advancing Justice LA is, uh, was founded in 1983 in the wake of the murder of Vincent Chin. Mm-hmm. Vincent Chin was a Chinese American man in Detroit, Michigan, who was beaten to death by two white auto workers who blamed the Japanese automobile industry for the economic demise that was happening in Detroit. And so despite mm-hmm. the fact that um, Vincent Chin was neither, uh, you know, a, Japanese and he was an American citizen, um, that did not stop then from um, beating him to death. And mm-hmm. he, he, his um, killers uh, ended up not serving a single day in jail for what they did. And mm-hmm. so at that time, there was um, a wave of Asian American activism that came mm-hmm. from the Vincent Chin experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and our organization was also one of those. Um, we are now the largest civil rights and legal service organization in the country for the Asian Pacific Islander community. We serve about 15,000 clients a year through a range of different services. Um, I like to think of our organization as having sort of um, a triad of, of, of the way we do our work. At the bottom, you have our direct legal services. So we do things like immigration law, citizenship, Mm -hmm. Uh, domestic violence, family law, um, and we do a housing protection or eviction defense practice. Um, And we also do a health access program to get people um, in covered California, get them insured, as well as to do outreach now on vaccine and um, get APIs to get vaccines. Mm. Um, So that is a direct legal services to work with the community. And we also have um, helplines in eight Asian languages and dialects. So people, especially immigrants, can call us in their own language to ask for help. Um, But, you know, when there are systemic gaps or barriers in the system for our community members, that's where we can rely on our policy and impact litigation departments. I think of policy as sort of the carrot where we can go to uh, state legislatures and uh, get bills and laws passed to support the community. Uh, We work very closely, for example, with the Asian Pacific Islander Legislative Caucus in California Mm -hmm. to get the $165 million API equity budget passed in response to anti-Asian hate. Um, That was last year. And then we have impact litigation, which is the stick where if the system is broken, we can Um, use the law as a tool to make changes and use the court system. Um, Mm -hmm. On top of that, we also have a demographic research project that provides some of the data we need for some of these other areas of work. But 
overall, that is sort of our way of both being on the ground to directly support our community members who would mm-hmm. otherwise fall through the cracks, while also looking at ways to make systemic changes in the system. And our organization is located, we have our main office in LA and an office, mm-hmm. satellite office in Orange County. Uh, and then we have one field person in Sacramento for the policy work. Wow, that's amazing. It's giant. It's giant. Uh, for a nonprofit, you know, it's a pretty good size. We have about 80 staff, um, oh. and so it's a big team. Um, and I will say Asian Americans Advancing Justice LA is one organization out of five who make up an affiliation that uses the brand name Asian Americans Advancing Justice. So I run oh. the LA affiliate, which mm-hmm. um, uh, is as I mentioned, LAOC in Sacramento, but mm-hmm. we have other affiliates across the country in DC, Atlanta, Chicago, and San Francisco. All of us, although we are independent nonprofit organizations, mm-hmm. we do collaborate very closely around our work, especially around racial justice, especially during the pandemic, um, voting rights, immigration, and a couple of other areas. That's awesome. That's amazing. Thank you for all your hard work and commitment. I love it. Um, and I'd love to know a little bit more about the immigration department. You mentioned that you do have um, a service line uh, that has eight different languages immigrants can call. What could they call about? Right. So our Asian Language Legal Intake Program helplines, also known as ALIP, uh, people can call in Cantonese, Mandarin, Korean, Vietnamese, Tagalog, um, and Hindi. Um, they can call and they can ask for any sort of support or help they need, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we get calls for everything. And if it's something that our organization can help them with, like if they say, you know, I'm facing eviction or I'm getting harassed mm-hmm. by my employer or I, um, I'm in an abusive situation, I need a restraining order. Those are all things that we can help them with in-house. So ALIP, mm-hmm. those helplines are the gatekeeper to our services. But often right. clients are calling us for all thing, all sorts of things. Once mm-hmm. you become a trusted source for the community, what mm-hmm. happens is, uh, particularly for our immigrant communities, they keep calling you for everything. Because they, mm-hmm. they, they know you and they trust you. Mm-hmm. And so then part of our job is to refer them to the appropriate organization for other things. If somebody mm-hmm. calls and I said, I need counseling services in Mandarin, mm-hmm. although we don't provide counseling services ourselves, we know who are the mental health providers for the Asian Pacific Islander community so we can refer them. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, when that's how our helpline works. Now for our immigration law services, Um, We do citizenship, couple thousand citizenship applications a year. Um, But in addition to directly handling citizenship cases with our um, attorneys, we lead a collaborative across the country of helping other API organizations to also be able to do citizenship applications. So we have partners in you know, Atlanta, we have them in Texas, we have them in um, the Midwest, the East Coast, and um, they have, we provide technical assistance and support so that way they can also do citizenship applications for their clients and we can help troubleshoot when they, have, when they face certain challenges. In addition to the citizenship work, our immigration unit also does um, a whole host of different kinds of immigration work. We do um, uh, 
Removal de defense, we are we were at Adelanto detention facilities directly mm. working with clients. We do family petitions. Um, we uh, do U visas and VAWAs, which are immigration relief for domestic violence victims or other mm -hmm. victims of crime. Um, mm -hmm. So we do kind of a wide range of different services. That's amazing. I love it. I, I remember volunteering for the citizenship clinics back in the day. Super oh. solid. Yeah, it's, it's been a while. <laughs> That's great. And, you know, before the pandemic, we used to take a ton of volunteers and we would do citizenship mm -hmm. clinics where we would match volunteers and our attorneys with different clients because we needed our clients speak so many different languages that we would need a lot of volunteers and help to, to work with them. These days, because of the pandemic, we're not doing the in-person citizenship clinics yeah. anymore. They're, they're Zoom. We still work with some volunteers, but I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when we can be in person again and we can do those large clinics and really help a lot of clients at once. Yeah. Yeah. I know it. it I'm sure it's really challenging trying to do it through Zoom and some people just don't have Zoom or some people don't know how to upload documents. Oh, it's hard. Yeah, yeah, especially our seniors, you know, oh, those, yeah. it's so hard to ask them to try to do all of the documents and have all the paperwork and everything by Zoom. You know, it's super hard, but no, thanks for continuing at least doing, you know, doing citizenship. It's so, it's so important and, and I'd be happy to volunteer again in the future. So thank you. Um, keep me in mind. you when the time yeah. comes. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Um, so, um, there's been an increase in violence against the AAPI communities since COVID, since the pandemic began. Your organization has been really active in trying to um, stop that, stop the hate. Uh, can you tell us about what you've been doing, um, what your organization has been doing and how, how you've been getting involved with that? Yeah, so that became really one of the top issues for our organization uh, once the pandemic began and we started to see our community being scapegoated for uh, COVID-19. So we made sure that our ALIP language helplines uh, were available for victims of anti-Asian hate. We invested uh, quite a bit of money into ethnic media outreach to mm -hmm. let community members know in language that if their rights have been violated or if they've been victimized, that they could contact us. And this was the number. Um, we are working very closely with LA versus hate and the 211 system to make sure mm -hmm. that if people call LA County through 211 asking for support, we can help them get legal services as well. Mm -hmm. And then we do a victim's advocacy and case navigation and a legal representation to clients who've been, um, who've been harmed by anti-Asian hate. Um, in addition to the direct work we do with, uh, with victims, um, we offer bystander intervention trainings as a way for people to be allies to the Asian community right now. So mm -hmm. many people, you know, especially after what we saw with the, the Thai senior who was killed in Oakland and the Atlanta shootings, people wanted to get involved and they said, how can I help? How can I be an ally? Mm -hmm. um, and so we started offering free bystander intervention trainings by Zoom. And mm -hmm. we continue to do that today. You can find that on our website site at advancingjustice-la.org. And mm -hmm. we have the dates there for registration and the registration links. Um, but what you learn in bystander intervention are the tools of what you can do to support a victim and to intervene safely should you witness an Asian American being harassed. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. 
we teach what's called the five D's, which was um, developed by another organization we partner with called Hollaback. Mm-hmm. But those are uh, distract, delegate, uh, document, uh, direct, and delay. And so people usually think, oh, well, the, the, the main tool is direct, which is you go up to the person who's harassing you, say, stop what you're doing, cut it out. Mm-hmm. But people, a lot of folks are not comfortable doing that, understandably, because mm-hmm. it can be dangerous, right? And you mm-hmm. don't want to put yourself in harm's way. But there are four other Ds you could be using. You know, mm-hmm. uh, delegate means find a person of authority. If you see something happening on the bus, could you go up to the bus driver and tell that person, hey, pull over, I need you to deal with something here. If you see something happening at the at, a, at the mall, you could find the security guard or you could ask for the manager or you can get a group of people and say, we all need to kind of uh, get involved here. So mm-hmm. there are different techniques. I think that one of the most interesting one is distract. Mm-hmm. And what distract is, is um, you do something that will create a distraction that will just momentarily cause everyone to sort of stop and look and see, see what's going on. What's the commotion about? Hmm. And sometimes that disruption is just that momentary disruption is enough to break the moment and the chain mm-hmm. of conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's enough to allow the person who is being harassed or targeted to kind of safely exit. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, as you're walking by, you could drop your cup of coffee and all of a sudden everyone's going to stop and look and oh no there's coffee all over the place Mm -hmm. that can be enough um so we have the bystander intervention as a way to provide support we have our direct services to victims and then uh we were doing a lot of policy work getting uh state legislatures to get the api equity budget um we were doing uh public awareness campaigns and psas um and really just talking to the community to let them know what are ways that you need to be an ally? It particularly, mm-hmm. I think, not only to individuals, but institutions. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies and schools and places were asking, what should I do right now? Mm-hmm. You know, how, how do, how, what do we respond? And so mm-hmm. it's not only issuing statements, which are important to show your solidarity, but how can an organization or a company really provide the space for their employees to feel mm-hmm. like they can talk about this? How do you put, help your supervisors find the word so they can say, you know, I just want you to know to your Asian American employees that I stand in solidarity with you. I'm so sorry about what's happening in your community. Is there anything I can do um, to help? And really kind of also educate the community. And when I say the community, I mean the Asian, the American community as a whole, that Asian Americans, we have experienced this before, You need Mm -hmm. to know your history and know that the targeting of Asian Americans has happened over time in World War II with the Chinese Exclusion Act after Mm -hmm. 9-11. Learn Mm -hmm. that history and know what happens. And also, we cannot be treated like the model minority. You can't Mm -hmm. treat us like we're all the same and think, oh, all Asians are doing just fine because that Mm -hmm. makes us invisible. And uh, we need to stop letting that happen. Right, right. No, that's that's great information. So if somebody like me, you know, I work at a firm, I could bring it up to um, our superiors or HR or uh, just to say, hey, let's do a talk on this. Let's have everybody watch this video um, for bystander intervention. Right. I mean, I, I, I think I think as ourselves, we can go to our employers and say we want some information on this, we wanna protect our AAPI brothers and sisters at the workplace, right? Yeah, absolutely. We've seen firms, um, 
hire us or other or Hollaback to do bystander intervention trainings for the firm itself. Mm-hmm. And that way people could all do it together. Um, we've, I've spoke, I've spoken at many, many firm events where they've asked me to speak for an hour and talk about why we're seeing the rise in anti-Asian hate, understanding the history, and then also how to show solidarity. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies and firms are doing what they call sometimes candid conversations or, um, or something similar where they have a a space for people to kind of talk about what's happening and talk about race because those Mm -hmm. are those were traditionally taboo topics to have in the the professional setting and we're trying to break that barrier and say it is now okay to acknowledge and recognize people's race and their racial identity and how that might impact them in their work Mm -hmm. Um, and Mm -hmm. you know people are 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 starting up asian employee affinity groups or those Mm -hmm. affinity groups are holding their own spaces for their api employees so there's many many things that firms could be doing um, to provide both a safe space and um, support to their employees at this time yeah, no, definitely, definitely. What are you? What were the statistics that you were seeing um, in terms of the hate crimes against um, Asian Americans, and has it has it gotten a little bit better at least? Well, I think one of the uh, common cited statistic is Stop AAPI Hate, that is a national aggregator of data, has Mm -hmm. received over 10,000 reported incidents of hate um, since the pandemic began. Um, But you can see other statistics as well. If you look at like the LAPD, they have a hate crimes report. So does LA County Human Relations Commission and, um, you know, New York uh, City did one recently. There's a Center for Extremism and Hate from uh, San Bernardino. What what they've done is they've these uh, different institutions have had reports that they issue every year. And so what we're they're starting to put out their 2021 reports. And when mm-hmm. you compare the 2021 reports with their 2020 reports, what you're seeing is there was a huge huge spike in anti-Asian hate crimes, as well as hate incidents. So hate crimes are racially or ethnically motivated um, actions Mm -hmm. um, that uh, rise to the level of a criminal activity. And Mm -hmm. hate incidents are are those actions that don't necessarily have to rise to the level of crime. So things Mm -hmm. like a racial slur, if somebody said, go back to your country, or they spit, spat on you, those would not be a crime, but they're still hate incidents. Now we know that the majority, the vast majority of what happens are hate incidents, but we also know, of course, some of the terrible hate crimes that have happened. Mm-hmm. And I think across the board, whether you're looking at hate crimes or hate incidents, you have statistics showing you know, up to 300% increase or five-fold increase in the number of Asian Americans being targeted. And I will say for Asian American women, especially, Mm. We're seeing uh, very high and very alarming rates of Asian American women being targeted. I mean, we all know, you know, what's recently happened in New York City. Um, Mm. uh, Of course, last year with Atlanta are Mm. examples, but the statistics show Asian American women are targeted probably two to three times more than Asian American men. That is so scary. That's so scary. And I want to seeing the statistic, I think it was also like older people were being targeted a lot. And that is so sad. It really is. I think seniors, 
have been targeted, women have been targeted and immigrants. Anyone who is, I think, perceived as perhaps being more vulnerable or mm -hmm. easy to target or less likely to report are mm -hmm. often being the ones who are targeted. Um, it is really sad. And you're right, it's really scary. And I, I, you know, I talked to many, many people who were saying, I'm scared to return back to work. I'm scared mm -hmm. to go back to school. I was talking to different colleges who were saying they'd never seen so many Asian students take a leave of absence last year. Mm. Um, we know studies showed that when schools, K through 12 schools were opening back up, Asian Americans were disproportionately staying home and opting not to go to school for fear of bullying for their for their children. So, I mean, we we at Advancing Justice LA recently published a report that was a community survey in San Gabriel Valley, which is a neighborhood of LA that has some of the highest levels, numbers, as well as percentages of Asian Americans. It's, it's where I was saying that I, I live. Mm -hmm. And in that in that community survey, you know, 31%, so almost one third of our survey respondents said that they had either experienced um, anti-Asian hate or uh, one of their immediate family members had. Mm. And more than half said they, they fear, they, are, they feel less safe now than they did before the pandemic. So it is yeah. a really scary time for our community. Yeah, no, it's, it's super real. Um, I, I had a friend in New York who just didn't want to take the subway anymore. And, you know, and I had, uh, I've seen um, little children get uh, where an adult would, would make a racial slur to a, like a five-year-old. And it's just very, it's, it's sick, you know, it makes me, it's horrible. Um, well, hopefully our, our, we can, you know, our listeners can, can do something and, um, learn about it themselves, bring it to their companies, bring it to their community um, and, and see how we can reduce this. I, I feel like there was a lot of talk about it maybe last year about API hate. I, I've, I feel that it slowed down. Um, I see that a lot in with a lot of issues, right? It, it gets really popular and then it slows down. You're like, um, it's still here and it's worse. Hello, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's what happens. So we have to keep it going. It's true. I, I think once the media headlines stop showing it on the front page of the news, mm -hmm. sometimes people's attention, it wanes and it goes to the next subject. Yeah. But really the investment in racial equity and supporting and showing solidarity and supporting the Asian community during this time continues to be important, continues to be yes. so critical. You know, as this pandemic goes on, there are still so many people who blame the Asian American community, even yeah. though it is not our fault that COVID-19 has spread throughout our country and the world, but we continue right. to be scapegoated for it. Right. And that means that we will continue to experience violence and hate, unfortunately. Oh, well, Connie, thank you for your work on that. And again, I'll keep, keep spreading the word about that. Um, I'd love to bring it back a little bit more uh, on, on you and, and um, so, you know, throughout your time working in immigrant rights and social justice, can you tell us an experience that you're most proud of? Yeah, so um, I think for me, this, this is one experience that I'm quite proud of. And I will say this actually happened before I came to Advancing Justice LA, but um, at my previous job, 
we uh, we we were working with uh, Child Protective Services and providing some counseling and parenting education to parents who'd been referred by Child Protective Services for abuse and neglect. And we would work with a lot of Korean families because we offered our parenting classes in Korean. And what we discovered was for kids who were taken by the uh, Child uh, Protective Services in LA, it's called Department of Children and Family Services, um, they were taken from their families and when they were put into foster homes, they were never put into Korean foster homes. And in fact, they were wow. almost never put in Asian foster homes. And so the parents would say, you know, my kids are in a foster home and we can't communicate with the foster parents. Our kids are traumatized. Sometimes if the kids come from an immigrant home and they're not, they haven't started school yet, they don't speak English themselves and they can't communicate with their foster parents. So we're trying to figure out what, what was going on. And that's when we discovered that there was not a single licensed foster parent of Korean descent in all of LA County. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is shocking. LA County has the largest Korean population outside of Seoul, Korea of any city, yeah. right? And um, and then we, we found out that there were maybe two handfuls of licensed Asian foster parents that DCFS had in their, in their system. Hmm. And um, we couldn't believe that there were no Asian Americans who were willing to become foster parents and take in kids who had been abused and neglected and they, they needed homes. Mm -hmm. um, and so we ended up starting the first licensed foster family agency in the country, specializing in the needs of Asian Pacific Islander foster kids and families. Oh my and, um, you know, when I left KFAM in uh, you know, the summer of 2020, we were, we had, we were working with uh, Korean, Chinese, and Filipino uh, parents and uh, mm. kids, and finally able to provide kids with foster parents who spoke their language, ate the same food as them, could mm. really understand their culture and their language. Um, and that was one of those experiences where it was so important where it it, it, it it really struck home why it's imp important to have API nonprofits because Absolutely. the foster system's huge. There's, mm -hmm. it's huge, and, but there was never any system that really cared about our API kids because mm -hmm. we didn't make up a huge percentage of the foster system in LA County. So mm -hmm. resources were being invested into other communities where there were bigger numbers. Mm -hmm. And I understand, you know, if you only have a couple hundred API foster kids, it's not going to take as much of a priority for others. But mm -hmm. if you are API and you know that there's a child who is, you know, not able to eat Asian food or speak to their foster parents and have no idea what's going on. It is important for our community that we take care of each other. So that was one of those experiences that taught me why it's so important to have culturally specific nonprofits who know the community and can fill those gaps that the mainstream community is not gonna do for us. Yeah, wow, that's amazing, congratulations. It's it's so hard for me to believe that that you know there wasn't a foster family that was Korean like like until recently you know it it's just wow I'm so glad you did that thank you um you know this is really helpful because you know we have people in our audience who are trying to um, just figure out what they want to do in the future and 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 
how they want to help and your background and your experience is really, really helpful in, in guiding them. So thank you. Um, so if, if there are people who want to get involved with Asian Americans advancing justice in LA, how would you recommend that? I know COVID makes things harder, but there are ways to volunteer, there are ways to donate. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, absolutely. If you want to donate to us, we certainly uh, appreciate the financial support. You know, a $50 donation pays for two people to attend one of our free bystander intervention trainings, for mm. example. So you can go to our website, which is advancingjustice-LA, dot org um, and you can make an online donation there that's where you can also sign up for bystander intervention training if you want to mm. learn what you can do to uh, be an ally in case you were to witness an asian american being harassed or bullied um, we encourage people to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we often include social media assets in there that you can use, you know, when, when um, March 12th, there's going to be a day of remembrance for the um, Atlanta shooting um, mm. incident uh, from that, which was on March 16th. So for things like that, if you're following us on, on social media, you can help us repost that and share those kinds of moments with others. Um, and if you are interested in having uh, somebody from our organization, either as a speaker or to do a bystander intervention for your company, you can absolutely reach out to us. We're always looking for also volunteers and interns. On the website, you can find a contact button or, you know, you're welcome to reach me directly as well. Um, you know, and I think I will just say that there are so many ways, little and big, that everyone can get involved. Mm -hmm. And in this moment, you know, I think to myself how what we are living through right now with this pandemic is so historic. Mm -hmm. All of our future generations are going to study this moment in their history books. Mm -hmm. um, and when those future generations ask each and every one of us, what was it like to live through this? And what were yeah. you doing when, you know, when anti-Asian hate was happening? Yeah. You know, are you ready to have an answer and say, this is what I did? And yeah. I think it's really important for that reason that you find a way to take action of some way to show your support and help uh, promote a safer and more racially equitable world for, for Asian Americans and everyone. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great message. I actually do think about that myself when my son's bigger. He's only six, turning seven, but when he's older and he reads it, it's like, well, I remember because I was five, you know, he may remember a little bit of being in masks and but. It's like, what did you do during this time? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I, I'll have it written down. So <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But I think people just, you know, yeah, I think the, the way is to spread the word. We always tell people, the, you know, just every little bit helps. Even sharing a post, sharing it on story, telling one other person, someone may actually look at it and it could change their lives. You know, so it, um, and, and people always think, oh, I can't do it. I, they're overwhelmed. They, they, it's just, oh, I don't have all this money to donate. I don't have all this time. I was like, just, just do a little bit of that. And if everybody did that, it would make you know, a huge difference. So. Absolutely. It's, the, it's, it's making the changes in your spheres of influence and in your yeah. local areas that have the true impact. 
you know, if everyone who was on the street, on the sidewalk, on the subway, on the bus actually took bystander intervention training and knew how to look out for one another, yeah. we would have safer neighborhoods. You can't mm-hmm. delegate that to our, um, you know, elected officials mm-hmm. and uh, and others and say they will take care of that. I mean, they're mm-hmm. doing the broader policy things, but it's what you do locally at your home, in your, you know, place of worship, at your, uh, at your work, where mm-hmm. you can advocate and make those changes. Those have a local but really vital impact to those around you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's great, great advice. Thank you, Connie, so much for your time, your commitment, you're super inspirational. Um, now you just make me want to do way more. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm, you know, super honored to have to have you today, and uh, just thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Well, thank you, Angeline, for this opportunity to speak to you and to reach out to all of your members or your audience and mm-hmm. um, help us amplify the message. Thanks, Connie. This podcast is intended for general education and informational purposes only, and should not be regarded as either legal advice or a legal opinion. You should not act upon or use this publication or any of its contents for any specific situation. Recipients are cautioned to obtain legal advice from their legal counsel with respect to any decision or course of action contemplated in a specific situation. Clark Hill PLC and its attorneys provide legal advice only after establishing an attorney-client relationship through a written attorney-client engagement agreement. This recording does not establish an attorney-client relationship with any recipient.